Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firone, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. The following is a conversation with Professor Leo Cori, a historian and philosopher of mathematics and science and the former dean of the humanities at Tel Aviv University. Leo has such a rich background that I'm not sure where to begin. He was born in Chile, grew up in Venezuela during its golden years, and then came to Israel. He's been a kibbutz member for over 20 years, has studied mathematics, history, and philosophy, and has such an extensive mapping of the history and evolution of science and mathematics as well as a deep understanding of how different cultural and social movements work together to create the environment that made certain technological advancements possible. We spoke at length about the philosophy of science, how we need to stay humble in the face of uncertainty, and how, for the greater part of history, science and religion have been married to one another, science having been born out of religion, with the fundamental goal of both being to understand the world and the universe we find ourselves in. We talked about the point at which science became divorced from religion, to the extent that today most people would find the two antithetical to one another. I believe that taking the zoomed-out approach helps us better understand the evolution of science and helps us to better understand our own modern way of thinking today. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, Leo. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I wanted to start off by asking you a bit about your life journey because you've had a very unique path that brought you to where you are today. So I'd love if you can tell us a little bit about how you came to study philosophy and the history of science and mathematics. Okay, sure. I arrived in Israel in 1977. I, was in I came from Venezuela uh, I will say a little bit about that, but I just will say now that I was part of the Shomerat Zahir Zionist mm-hmm. movement. You saw, and then I came to Israel for ideolog- ideological reasons. I wanted to be here. I wanted to be in a kibbutz. I made Aliyah to a kibbutz, Kibbutz Nirim in the Negev, which is now in the news, unfortunately, for the bad reasons, because it's part of what we call in Israel Otefaza. The the, um, the villages, kibbutzim, etc., surrounding uh, the, the Gaza Strip. Uh, and I lived there for 20 years. So before coming here, I grew up in Venezuela to where I arrived with my family in uh, 58, where I came from Chile. And uh, I studied at the Jewish school and then at the university. And this is a, uh, I always like to say that this is a, bi- a biographical uh, detail, but it's also a description of what many of the my generation in Venezuela uh, uh, went through. Because if uh, we were all, we had a very interesting community, a very nice community. I think that everyone loved that community and still loves it today. Perhaps a little bit of nostalgia, but not not just. It was a community where people of my age, I would say, like half. Have come had come from different places in the world, so South America, Israel, Eastern Europe. After the war, people who who were born in Europe after the war, 
a, a large community of Moroccan Jews who came in various waves. And all of us studied in the same school, were part of the same uh, liberal um, uh, atmosphere, which was also the atmosphere in the country. That were Those were very, very wonderful years for Venezuela. Precisely between 58 and 80, let's say, were the best years for Venezuela, not just in terms of the economic boom that came because of the oil uh, and it had several waves, but also because of the democratic uh, um, uh, regime and the intellectual atmosphere, art, music, science was at the order of the day. So I studied at the, at the Jewish school, Colegio Morales Luces, which I love very much. And then I started university at the age of 16, which is not very exceptional in Venezuela. <laughs> Usually people start at the age of 17 or 18, the oldest people over there. And I was among the younger, but not the youngest. So, uh, but, you know, seeing it today, going back... Uh, a kid of 16, <laughs> 16 years old kid. So uh, I chose mathematics, uh, which... Uh, uh, why, why did you choose well, mathematics? Well, because I love that. And I, uh, the more I studied, the more I loved it. Um, it was also, it has advantages, you know, um, for a person who has the ability, uh, it doesn't have all the inconvenience <laughs> of studying, for example, biology or, or uh, engineering or computer science that was at the beginning. The inconvenience meaning that you have to go to the labs and you have to have your, your time. They say, you, you, for, you know, today you, you can program your computer. At the time it was uh, cards and you had to say, well, I want to come at 10 in the morning and then things didn't go. I didn't like all that. So <laughs> I could study uh, at home or with my friends. And it's, uh, you know, people don't know that, but the, the world of mathematics, it's like a kind of magic. It's like a, a little, not a little bit, very much like music, mm -hmm. uh, where if you are fortunate enough to have the abilities to go into that, then you enter into a world that is like a closed uh, sect, let's say, you know, that people, they let you in if you are one of the persons who can do it, and then you start uh, uh, learning all these kind of abstract theories of mathematics that are really uh, uh, magic, and you you know something that other people don't know. And, and uh, but in that particular university where I studied at the time, we also had a lot of humanistic studies. Uh, there was also a choir which I am again in contact with people. So it was a very um, a comprehensive way of entering the world of knowledge, which included scientific knowledge, in a sense, technic technological knowledge, but also from the beginning, a way to look a little bit critically at that, to, to ask questions you know, at the age of 16, I also was in a, in, a, in a youth movement, I say, which was very political and critical to look at the world, at society, but also at the world of knowledge with a mixture of awe, and, but also a, a, not so much criticism, but some wondering about where does it come from and where does it go to and how does it connect to the society around? How can science be of help, you know, to improve society. At that time, 
there were different views of what does it mean to improve society. I came to a kibbutz because I wanted to live in a better society. And in Venezuela, there was a lot of political talk about how to improve. And we read a lot of, socio of sociologists and people who, who wondered about modern world. What is this new world in we live, where we live, right? So the, I received a very eclectic, but at the same time, high-level education that I think that many people can only dream about it. And I got it because it was in Venezuela. And it was, by the way, it was free. Not that I had the, or my parents probably would have the money to pay for education. But I want to say that this was the way in which things work in Venezuela. The government wanted to have this very elite university. Elite, not in the sense that it's elite, that the elites go there. Because I had friends coming from all around. And some of them I am still in contact with. And they develop their own careers. Very interesting stories about that. So it was five years of a lot of discovery. Amazing. You know? I yeah. think in, in today's world of, you know, student loans that, you know, people exactly. can <laughs> can leave university exactly. with like hundreds of thousands exactly. of student loans. It's uh, very inspiring to yeah. hear that you you got that kind of education and it was free. Yeah, actually, they paid me because I was uh, an assistant, uh, you know, for, to the teachers. I I thought at the university from the age of 17. Uh, so, uh, yes, it was, and it was fantastic in terms of uh, of content. So, when I came to Israel, I was 21 years old. I had already studied five years of mathematics. I had uh, been involved in music of uh, of all kinds, classics and popular music from Venezuela, which is wonderful, and salsa, which was at the time, at the heyday, the 70s, and literature, which I love very much, Latin American literature, philosophy a little bit, and with a, with a very broad view uh, about the world for a, for a young person, I think. And then I came to the kibbutz. Uh, I started to work, to work in agriculture, which I also loved very much. And after a while, I went to the army. Uh, I went to a combat unit. You know, at the time, no one spoke about Shmone uh, Matayim and all kind of uh, technological things. I knew that there were computers in the army, but I didn't go. I didn't want to go there because I wanted to be a fighter, you know, to go to the army to get my... A red beret and my wings and everything, which I got. <laughs> and it was very important as a way to um, to become an Israeli. Okay, so after I was, I worked for one year and a half in the fields of Nirim and I went to the army and everything. Uh, I was a full Israeli in all senses. Uh, but I must say that I never relinquished my Latin American identity. Not uh, I, I didn't even. Uh, uh, this is something that I, I didn't have to to wonder about. It was just as if, like in Venezuela, I had both things. I had a Jewish and Israeli oriented identity, and then it changed. The, the weights change it, but not the not the the components, right? So, um, and I actually, when we finished the army, I, with my friends from Nirim, we had a, a small uh, ensemble of Latin American music and we toured the country. In, in, Brilliant. Yeah, it was very nice. It was not very professional, I must say, but it was fun. So, it, so we, we sang Venezuelan songs, Argentinian songs and every, all kinds of things. 
I still, with some of them, we are friends, and once in a while we play together and so on. So, uh, and then I, I went back to the kibbutz and I started, I continued to work in the fields, but I got, a, let's say, promotion in the kind of responsibility that I had for that. And then in the next 20 years, I was a Haver Kibbutz, a member of the kibbutz. I fulfilled all kind of duties in the kibbutz. I was maskir, uh, the, the general secretary of the kibbutz, which is a very interesting and, and uh, it was very challenging. You are responsible for the life of 100 families and and you have to think how to work out uh, things. How old were you in this? Um... I think uh, 35, okay. 36, something like that. And um, it was interesting, and uh, but at the, so I I lived at the time, and actually I have always lived that kind of thing, a double life. Like I was in the kibbutz, but I was also pursuing my uh, my my studies. I uh, just before becoming maskir, I finished my PhD in history and philosophy of science. I will go back to that in a minute. And then I, if still as a member of the kibbutz, I went uh, one year to Berlin. Uh, the Max Planck Institute. I was an invited fellow, and then one year with the family we went to uh, to Boston to MIT. I was a fellow at MIT, and uh, after I came back from MIT, and then I was already uh, a well-established, uh, young-established uh, scholar in my field. I knew people; people knew me, and I started my career at the university. Uh, but uh, curiously enough. Uh, and it's a very long story to tell here, so I will spare that from you. But uh, one of the members of the kibbutz was in contact with a very, very important uh, high-tech industry in the United States, in the Boston area. It's called EMC, a storage company. Actually, when I was still at the end of my stay in Boston, I already started to work with EMC uh, in a partial way, since I am a mathematician. And, they, and we, uh, together with this, uh, another friend in Nirim, Chaim, name, he, we uh, created a lab. He created Chaim. I was in, in charge of certain things, but he... So we had in Nirim, in Otefaza, a lab of EMC Corporation from Hopkinton, Massachusetts. Wow. <laughs> developing all kinds of interesting things. So I work there two days, and I work at the university four days. That was my uh, That really routine. is living two, yeah, yeah. two worlds. Two or three, one may say, <laughs> because uh, I was also a member of the kibbutz, and I was in charge of all kinds of things. So, you know, I had to develop my career, my academic career, as if that's the only thing in the world. Uh, but I also worked at... Uh, and, and then I, I worked, for 20 years in a partial way in the high-tech industry in, in Nirim and then in Tel Aviv and Herzliya. Kind of, now I am not working the, there anymore, but uh, for 20 years, which was very interesting. But I must say that one of the main reasons I started to work there is the same reason that I went into mathematics and the history of science and whatever, which is curiosity. I was very curious. You know, it was the beginning of the high-tech uh, buzz in 95, 96. Uh, there was high tech before that. The but dot uh, Yes, and... it was a little bit before. It was, the right, internet right. was just becoming popular and so on. And I wanted to understand what are these people doing over there? What What is the meaning of being in a high tech company? So I I went there and I did whatever I did. Never mind at the moment. I can tell you if we, we have time. 
And then at some point, I, uh, we decided in the family, after 20 years, my wife was born in the kibbutz, so she was 40-something at the time, and we moved to, to the Tel Aviv area, to Ramat Gan, and I continued my career at the university, and then uh, working a little bit also in the, in the industry. So I, well, I became uh, the head of the Kohn Institute for History and Philosophy of Science, which is my unit, and then I became the head of the School of History, and eventually I became also the dean of the Faculty of Humanities, which is, I did for five years, and then I finished, and I went back to uh, pure research, which is what I am doing now, enjoying a lot. And I, I do it uh, 24-7, more or less, I mean, whenever I can. And that's uh, very nice. Now, I can tell that you love what you do and you're passionate about it, especially <laughs> yeah. after, um, you know, all of these different positions and then going back to research wholeheartedly. Yeah. So about your research, I yes. wanted to ask you exactly what, wh when you say history of science yeah. and mathematics, what exactly are the things that you're looking at? <laughs> yeah. So when I was studying mathematics in Venezuela, well, I was a good student, and I was very diligent and everything, and uh, and I knew, you know, I had very good, uh, I had success in solving problems, which is what you do in mathematics, right? You, you have to solve problems, you have to prove theorems, you have to do things that mathematicians do. You start as a student. And I did it, and I like it, I, I like that very much. But always in the back of my mind, there was a different question. I didn't know at the time how to formulate it. But uh, I noticed that I was more interested in the question how all this system of knowledge called mathematics or science came to exist. Uh, and uh, 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 what, what were the forces and the, and the processes that create that kind of knowledge? In both, in, in two big senses, which one is the general corpus of science uh, called uh, mathematics or whatever, and also some specific ways of doing mathematics. Well, you know, for the layman, mathematics is like a big C where you have all kinds of things and usually people don't, don't even get an idea of what's going think, on over I there. I think most people think most of people. algebra, exactly. you know, high school, And calculus. they tell me I was very bad at uh, mathematics. That's what most people say. But uh, if you know a little bit of mathematics, when you start to study, you see that there are Various approaches at doing things uh, and various branches and various styles and many things like that. You know, when you say to a person, a style of doing mathematics, what are you talking about, right? Yeah, because when I think of mathematics, I think of, um, you know, one discipline where, at least in one discipline, you have uh, right and wrong. Yeah, you exactly. have this equals that and yeah, this yeah, does yeah. not equal that. Which is part of, which is partly true, but it's not the entire truth because you still have to ask yourself, what do you want to talk about? What are the problems? What are the uh, and what are the the right ways to approach the problems? What is a le legitimate way to do it? You learn this by doing, but I was always asking myself, how how did it happen? And, and actually, I found in the library a book about the history of mathematics. And I read it, you know, with with, a, with, with curiosity. So, okay, but that's, a, let's say, uh, that's just a story. But when I, when I finished 
when I, I started to study in 81 after the army, and then I did my, I, I didn't know exactly what to do, but a professor at Tel Aviv, he told me, look, you can, you, you have enough uh, background to start your PhD in mathematics. But since you have been a little, so, some years, uh, not really doing mathematics, but doing other things, why don't you uh, get here an MA? You, I, I, they asked me to do two courses and write a thesis. So that we know you, you know the people, and you again get your gears moving, you know, inside your mind and so on. And I said, yeah, good idea, good idea indeed. And I started to do whatever I started to do. And I wrote a thesis on pure mathematics uh, in a field called cohomology of groups. Well, that, a big name, but uh, it's, you know, pure mathematics. That's what I like it. And, uh, and then I started the PhD in mathematics. But then I said, wow, I have this campus here at Tel Aviv. I want to go to study a little bit of history like I did in Venezuela, perhaps a little bit of uh, literature, whatever, I don't know. So I went to the building of the humanities to see what, they are, what courses they are offering there, just as a side uh, interest. And then I discovered that there is something new called the Institute for History and Philosophy of Science. And I said, wow, this may interest me. And then I went there and I talked to the director, Professor Yudal Kanahi had just begun with that. And of course, he was very keen on bringing new students who are curious. So he offered me whatever I wanted in terms of uh, uh, scholarships and so on. But I said, okay, I, I will come and see what it is. And then I noticed that this was a place where they were dealing with those questions that I had very diffusely in my mind asked about mathematics, about knowledge, about science, uh, how does it fit in the world, and so on, in a very broad sense uh, that I had never imagined. You know, like I said, when I started mathematics, I never imagined what I was going to study. So the same happened when I entered this field of history and philosophy of science. And I liked it very much, and I said, rather than doing a PhD in pure mathematics, I want to do it in history and philosophy of science. And that's what happened. And uh, from there to now, that's what I, that, that has been one of my main uh, interests. Not, not the only one, but uh, one of the main. I think, you know, what interests us is very mysterious. We don't always know exactly what we're interested in. Certain things, um, they kind of call us, right? Like the a book that you found of the history of yeah. mathematics and certain things that act, they act as clues along the way. Right, and I think you're perfectly right, and I could say certain things that uh, I that there have been in my in the, the course of my career or life, which like uh, they were waiting for me there to be done. It is true about certain topics that I have done in the history of mathematics, and I can tell you another thing which may be interesting. I just published a translation of a book. Uh, which uh, was written in 74 by a very important, sometimes not uh, uh, sufficiently, sufficiently acknowledged Cuban writer called Alejo Carpentier. And the book is called Concierto Barroco in Spanish. Which means? Baroque concert. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, in the army, I had uh, some friends that we, we read books and discussed and I... I know I knew this book from Venezuela because I I studied it in the university. I told you I studied also a little bit of uh, literature and so on. And I said to my friends, 
this book, this book has to be translated into Hebrew. So I, I thought about that, but it only happened, you know, after 40 years. It just happened now. Wow. And I'm very glad about it. And it's, I, I, of course, I did it much better than I could have done it back then. And it's a book edited with notes, historical notes and many things and so on. But there are also some topics in the history of mathematics that, that I, I knew somehow that I wanted to investigate them. And, and with time, I did. And it was, it was like waiting for me to... Amazing. To yeah, certain things that are just waiting for you to, to discover them or certain yeah. things that are waiting for you to manifest them into the world. Exactly. And, and you might know it at yeah. a very yeah. young age, right? Yeah. An early point in your yeah. career, but yeah. it does but, take time. <laughs> yeah, although the world is a little bit uh, a large word for... Because usually what I do and the, the kind of things that I deal with I think I do it, I do them correctly and with patience, as you said, but, you know, the the audiences I reach <laughs> are quite small, <laughs> in order, also with this translation, also with the history of science. These are not topics that people, you know, really... You know, there's, um, there's this, I don't know where I read this, but, um, you know, they were building a cathedral and they were making ornaments on the on the building itself. And they were making these ornaments and these, you know, beautiful details also in areas in the cathedral where no no humans would actually see it. And they asked them, why are you uh-huh. why are you putting so much effort into these areas uh-huh. where people aren't even gonna see it? And they said, God will see it. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. In the sense of yeah. just in the sense of certain things you can do. Um and it's not for the audience, yeah. but it's to be done and it's to bring it into the world. I agree. Um, okay, so we've spoken about these styles of mathematics and this concept of science that you researched. Mm-hmm. Now, just so we can understand a yeah. little better, what exactly, you know, of course this is a huge history and we're not going to yeah. be able to cover it all, yeah. but just to give us a little bit of a taste of yeah. how did science develop? How did math develop and what key points in yeah. that history mm-hmm. do you think are important for us to know? Mm-hmm. So um, every historian or philosopher of science has uh, some fields of specialty, um, which are the places where we do our research work, right? For example, my, my dissertation was about certain important developments in mathematics in in France and Germany since the late 19th century to the, let's say, 1940. Everyone in mathematics know what these topics are, uh, field theory, category theory, and uh, ring theory, let's say, to put it, the modern algebra, their names. But I, I went to the question of how it developed, okay? So that, and, and I can tell you other fields that I have, been researching. I have written about that. I have published, etc. And I am, I am in the community of historians of science or historians of uh, mathematics. They say, oh, you are talking about uh, Hilbert, Eminetter. There are two or three researchers that have written on that. And then I am one of them. And so it's the same for everyone in the field. But there is also the larger picture that we want to understand. Because we, uh, our interest in general is to understand what people knew 
in different periods, historical periods, right? Or cultural context and so on. And how did they know it? What counted for knowledge, uh, for example, that is related to the learned world as opposed to the popular world? How does knowledge evolve? Okay. So a good historian of science has to have a view uh, which is not uh, limited to the topics that he investigates, but is broader than that. And then, for example, in my case, for example, I, I have to leave certain things outside. I know very little about things like Chinese science or things like that that also exist. But, you know, I look at, uh, let's say, European science, even though we include for the purposes of, uh, of our investigation also what happened in the Islamic times. Because knowledge that was developed initially in, in, uh, in the Greek world, in antiquity, in late antiquity, it moved to the Islamic world and there it continued to develop, let's say, from the 8th to the 15th century. But already in the 12th century, it went back to Europe via the Iberic Peninsula, where things started to be translated from is for, so the Islamic scholars translated from Greek to or, or from Latin to uh, Arabic, mainly from Greek, and then uh, the important things from Greek. And then in the Iberic Peninsula and the south of France, it started to be retranslated into Latin. And the, it, there is a process of uh, re-entering science into the European world, into the Latin world, what we call the late Middle Ages where there is a very interesting boom of science. People usually speak, you know, about the Dark Ages, but right. these were not Dark Ages. They were you, dark. You don't like to call them that. No, because also our age is quite dark in many senses, right? <laughs> but there is, it, it is true that this knowledge only belongs to very few people, mainly people related to the ecclesiastic world, to the church, to the Catholic church, which combined the they, um, this science that entered and was translated, etc., it was very important for them because they saw a possibility of combining the early tenets of the Christian theology with the principles of the Greek science. And so they created what we call the scholastic system of thought. And in what years is this happening? We are it started. There are many stages, but the, the, real, the real important things happened between the 12th century, when things started to be translated in Spain, in the Iberic Peninsula, to the 15th century. Okay. This is the heyday of the scholastic world. And Okay, I, and, this, and I just want to stress this a, yeah. a bit, this idea of science coming back from the Iberic yeah. Peninsula. The, the world of knowledge in the late... Uh, Middle Ages, so in the, the centuries we, that we spoke about, the world of knowledge concentrates around the churches, the big churches. They create the universities mm -hmm. where people came to study and their studies, what we call today, is what we call today the liberal arts. This is what you studied if you came to a university. And then it included like uh, geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music, musical theory, that's the quadrivium, and the trivium is uh, um, grammatic, rhetoric, and um, logic. 
which was uh, a, a rhetoric uh, discipline, not a mathematical one. So that was the basic uh, education in the scholarly world. And then you could go to one of the big faculties that were either law, uh, medicine, or uh, theology, which was the main faculty. I'm talking about places like Bologna, Salamanca, Oxford, Paris, and so on. Those are the first places, and then universities start to appear in other places. And there is, it's not just a matter of saying mm, science and religion. It's the learned world that mm-hmm. where everything comes together. So the scholastic uh, leaders and the intellectuals, they were able to create... It, it also happened, by the way, in the Islamic world, but we don't have time to go over yes. all the things. But the idea is that, of course, people... The the the, lead, the leaders of the let's say of the of the church who are also the learned people, so they want to understand better the world, in order to understand the works of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what we humans have to do in order to work the Lord and to to be in contact with the with what the Lord intended for us, etc. So there is we have to know a, a, a nature because this is part of the creation. Right. So the motivation to seek knowledge and to better understand the world around us was to better understand God in a sense. Yes. And this and this is the case until the 17th century, including Newton. Right. So so but it changes very much, but not this particular thing. So nature and the works of the Lord are one thing that we want to understand. How do we understand them? That's another question. So at the beginning, uh, when the when the scholastics discover the Greek uh, uh, intellectual world, it fitted them in many senses. I, I cannot go into all the details. By the way, there was a big problem for to solve because in the, in the conception of Aristotle, who was the leader or around which all this uh, intellectual world uh, turns around, um, he spoke about the fact that the world has always existed and will always exist. So there is no creation. And in the, in the New Testament, and of course in the Old Testament, one of the main things that God does is to create the world. So this was right. a yes kind of... Te- yes, me'ain. Bria yes, me'ain. This was a main tension between the Aristotelian world and the uh, Christian theology uh, that... The, the scholastics try to settle, okay? So the scholastic world is very interesting. I have come to know him, to know it much more than I knew before. Uh, not as a researcher, but, you know, I have friends who, who write books. I can read them and, and I teach that and I understand it more and more. And, the, and then, then we also understand how these people saw the world to know, through knowledge that includes the religious theological side and the more scientific side, let's call it, but there was no real difference or separation. But there are tensions like the one I explained. And there is the question about the location of the of the planet Earth in the center of the world and then comes a, a gradually from the 15th century to the 17th century, what we call the scientific revolution that comprises many, many trends of a, a innovation or change in knowledge 
where the idea that the ancient knowledge of the Greek was the correct one. So it's like going back even earlier, saying, yeah, these people of the scholastic world, they change everything. They didn't understand. This is the humanism that arises in Italy in the 15th century, and then it moves to all of Europe that says they don't even know how to read Latin correctly and so on. We go back to the basics, to the masters, which are the the people or the, the, the intellectuals in the Greek and Latin world. And then this develops in many ways. Mathematics enters very strongly into the physical theories, which was not the case in the Aristotelian world. And many important things start to happen. Uh, one of the main things is the change from a geocentric world to a heliocentric world, which means that the sun is in the middle of the universe. But the difference in the mathematical uh, models that were used by the geocentric people and they, it's not very big. And in fact, people, for example, people, uh, this is a, a nice place to see, navigators, people who went, like Cristobal Colón, Christopher Columbus, but other people who navigated the seas, they continued to uh, orient themselves in the sea by using the models of the geocentric world even though they already knew that the, this is not the correct vision. But, but they, they were still effective. They were still working. They, from the point of view of calculations and the tools that existed to allow you to do that correctly, it was easier and, and more accurate in many senses because the new conceptions has, had not been developed to the same degree of accuracy and the tables, etc. So, so the passage is not... Even I, when I started to, stu- to study history of science, it was I thought that I was about to study the following. There were all these people who knew nothing, <laughs> who were idiots, who went outside and looked and said, look, the, the, the world, the, 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 the planet Earth is in the center. And then came the intelligent people who saw the light. And, but you see that the processes are much, much, much more complicated because... The ancient world and the scholastic then is a world that is very systematic and everything is very strongly connected to each other. So it creates a coherence of knowledge and a coherence with the, the basic tenets of religion that it's, uh, the, that it's not easy to relinquish that, to move into another system of knowledge where many things are not clear at all. So this, is, this was the, the work that people like Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler and, and Newton had to do because they had very good reasons to believe that it is the sun which is in the center of the system and that many of the other things of the Aristotelian conception is wrong. And then they started to complete the picture. They say, okay, it's true that they ask us questions that we don't know how to answer and they do know how to answer them in their system. But little by little, we will do that, right? And then, and then... I think that's, it's not an easy situation to be in when, you know, there is a consensus and you are picking up on certain clues that are showing that the consensus is wrong or faulty or not 100% accurate. And then, you know, being brave enough to put forth new ideas and to you paint right. the picture in a different way. And it still happens. And At, all the time. There is this uh, interesting story about one of our no- Nobel Prizes, Professor Schechtman, who had this idea about the quasi-crystals, uh, that according to the, theor- uh, to the theory, 
they cannot exist. It's not that we have not seen them, they cannot exist. And he came and said, look, I, I can show you. Uh, and he was more or less fired from the lab where he worked because you're talking nonsense. And well, he came to the Technion and there he developed. So this, this happens, but there is a difference. At the time, in the, let's say, 15th, 16th and 17th century, the ideal of knowledge was that the ancients knew it well. So the authority what, yeah. of the ancients is the main thing. What do you think do you think motivated that way of thinking? Why why did they pull There are from many the... reasons. There I it, because it's part of the intellectual culture where you grew up at the time. And this is and the idea that's what I wanted to say that the idea that innovation is the right path of science it didn't exist at the time. So Shechman, for example, he, he, his ideas were not accepted at the beginning, but not the principle that you can innovate and that you can say that existing or things that you were uh, at the basis of what you talk can, uh, what you think can be wrong. And at the time of Galileo and all these people, that was still the idea, but it was changing. It was changing in the sense, well, maybe they were wrong and we can do it differently. So it was not just to change the specific contents of a law of physics or a situation, a description of the universe, but it was also to change the principles, the normative principles of science and something which is very important also, which is the institutions of science. Because the institutions of knowledge, as I said before, in the scholastic world were the uh the the catholic church okay and people who are at the head of institutions they not not only think with reason or without reason that they know better but they also have the strength the power and the resources and no one wants to give that up but then there are changes and new institutions of of science are created and one of the interesting things that happens is the um, Protestant reform, which is crucial to understanding the changes in, at this level. Why? Because one of the main tenets of the, the new views that were associated with the Protestant Reformation, which is a very large thing and contains many things, but was that in order to understand the sacred scriptures, the New Testament and the Old Testament, you don't need the mediation of the Catholic Church, of the Church. At the time, there was no, no divisions of the Church. So this is a huge shift in the way of thinking that basically enabled for yes. science as we know it to evolve. Yes. yes, because one of the main roles that the Church took to itself at the time, things changed later, but at the time was, and it's written, in the in the mass, or and also in the way that people uh, who knew knew, and those may most people who didn't even know how to read. And it, it is there are the sacred scriptures. There is the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we, the Catholic Church, will tell you what is the meaning of that. Whereas the Reformation started from the idea, among other things, but a, a central one is in the, in the saying that meaning is in the text. 
And if meaning is in the text, it means that we don't need any mediation of any kind of church or authority for that matter. At least in principle, things don't really work that way because also the Protestant churches wanted to have their own authority, but but it's completely different. It's a completely way. But in pre, the principle says the meaning is in the text, and this is true for this because for the let's say it is true for the sacred text, and it's true for the text of nature. Okay. Okay. Now people start to read two texts that have to be coordinated. This was true also in a sense in in the in the days of the scholasticism but in a different way now you are a scientist you have to read the book of nature and you can read if you want the sacred scriptures right i think but you do it alone you can do it alone and and that i think is uh, is the most important key because we see here a spark of individualism yes. right this um, beginning of believing that we ourselves can make sense of the world for ourselves, right? Yes. Believing in our own sense-making yes. capacities and not outsourcing our sense-making to yes. higher authorities, you know, whether it yeah. be the church or, yes. or someone else. And and this idea basically created the environment for for science to develop in a way where people were more brave in the sense of this is true. Of trying new ideas and trying to explain the world and to consolidate these two worlds, the religious and the yes. scientific, with one another. Yes. But to make the story a little bit more complete and more complex, the Catholic Church, which is a very uh, strong and flexible institution in many senses, they realize very soon where things are going. Not all of them. The Catholic Church is something very big. But some, for example, the Jesuits, that for many uh, years in the history, they were considered as the most backward part of the Catholic Church for many reasons. In anything that has to do with science, they were the avant-garde. They, um, they understood the ways in which science in the 16th century, for example, is moving and in what directions. And they took to themselves the task to lead the Catholic world in those things. For example, it is very interesting to see that the leaders of the educational institutions of the Jesuits, which is they had the Collegio Romano, which is like the main university, and they had the leader of the Collegio Romano and, and all of them, but well-known is one called Christopher Clavius. If you see the official picture, you know, like you have the official picture of prime minister and so on. Well, it's a drawing, but he appears and in the back, you see all kinds of scientific instruments. Okay, this is the way that he wanted to present himself and the Jesuits uh, as part of the, of the Catholic world to the world. We are the people who lead the science. And they did very, very important things in terms of education and spreading science. But of course, they were very conservative in theological terms. So things are very complex and you cannot put it in terms of black and white and this is the people and so on. These are the... But there is a watershed in this sense. It's not in the scientific revolution. It's after the scientific revolution. 
let's say to put it with names, in the 18th century, you see people, especially in France, what is called the siècle des Lumières, the, 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 the time of the Illuminism, right? The people, let's say, if I say some names like uh, Voltaire and uh, D'Alembert and Diderot, they wrote or they published or they, they had this uh, idea of the new encyclopédie. And if you look at the encyclopédie of the 18th century and you compare it with anything that came before, then you see a big shift. Because you see, first of all, at the time, if you take in mathematics and physics, names like Lagrange and Laplace and Fourier, the big scientists of the 18th century, mostly in France, and it has to do also with their involvement in the French Revolution. It's all very complex, of course, because these are historical processes. You see that there is really a new conception of science and a new conception where the where the responsibility moves clearly to the individual and away from, for example, the, the, the eye of the church. And at the end of the 18th century, there is this very famous article by Immanuel Kant, who was the, the philosopher, the great philosopher of the 18th century Germany, He was a believer and he was a religious person, but he, he tried to delineate the correct limits between the human understanding, the pure reason, and belief. And he, uh, in a very famous article called What is, uh, what is the Enlightenment? Um, He wrote that the, the most important thing for an enlightened person is to dare to know. Sapere audere. Okay, so this is what he recommended. This was the, this, at the end of the 18th century, this becomes the main ideal of science. And why do you think he said dare to know? Because when you, in order to know, as you more or less hinted at, you have to... Um, In some situations, you have to face authority. It may be of the church, but it may be also of other scientists, let's say, or I don't know, of any institution. And if you want to be a full human being in, in terms of what was at the time formulated as the enlightened person is that. Again, it's much more complicated because then came, you know, in the 20th century, they ah, yes, but they included only white men Not women, and you know, things have become complicated or not uh, colored men. But I think that the, many of the, these ideals of the Enlightenment are, are important for us today. And it's about knowing. Knowing is an important thing and having your own thoughts. And science is one of the most important manifestations of this idea. Uh, and we live in a world that is scientific. But at the same time, has difficulties in, uh, in um, defining some of the main uh, uh, directions where to go uh, tomorrow. You know, we're, we're really in a big crisis now, right? I think, I think you're pointing to something very important in the sense that the scientific method, you know, one of its technical principles is to be unbiased, 
right? We want to take all human bias out of the picture to be able to discover what the objective truth is. And within that, you basically don't have a value system anymore because you have the pursuit of truth. You have, you know, seeking to find the objective truth, but we don't have any meaning structure that can tell us what we ought to do, right? Where should we invest our resources? What should we invest in discovering first? And and I think that that kind of points to a, a problem we face in our very, very scientific world today. Uh, I agree. I would say that um, the values of uh, uh, pursuing truth and being open to criticism in the way, as the way, to pursue, to, to pursue and to reach the truth, these are important values which apply beyond the question of uh, uh, knowing uh, whether a certain formula or certain uh, uh, way in which the atom or the DNA molecule is structured uh, applies. It applies beyond that. It applies also, it may apply also to, to other kinds of questions that have to do with the way that we live and we organize uh, ourselves uh, as a society. But it is true that uh, that uh, there are other things that have to be added to this. And there is, sometimes historians of science deal with these things. For example, in the past, it was very fashionable to uh, um, investigate. Few people could do it, but at least they wanted to do Soviet science, right? Because Soviet science or Nazi science, because you say... Is it possible at all to have science which is based on freedom of thought, freedom of, uh, of pursuing the kind of question that you want, etc., etc.? Is it compatible with a regime that is based on uh, preventing the individual of gaining individual freedom? It's a complex question, okay? It's a complex because there were important scientific achievements in the Soviet system and in the Nazi world. There, There's something in pooling all the resources of the collective that you are able as a society to create progress that when you have a more individualistic society, perhaps... The, the resources aren't as officially pulled together. However, there is... Maybe, the, yes. I mean, we, we are seeing that to a certain degree, although at what price? Exactly. And that, that's the, that's the main point I yeah, wanted to make. Exactly. For example, we think in those terms today about China. Exactly. That is a country that has the ability to, um, to decide and to... to, and to uh, material to make happen the decisions that they have about what is right to do. But, you know, also in a free country like the United States or Israel, you are free to do whatever you want in academic terms. But if you want to get money for your research, you have to convince people (laughs) 
And this, this kind of, uh, you have to do it because otherwise you don't get the funds and you cannot do it. And they, sometimes the funds go to certain things that not the government decides on them. Sometimes they may also do it, but the, there are, this is things, those are things that historians or sociologists of science think about. How are the resources uh, distributed and what kind of uh, research is done? I'll, t- I'll kind of give you an example, which is very actual. For example, um, there is uh, this trend about um, gender-oriented medicine uh, in which, you know, it's so simple now to see it, but it was so so difficult to see in the beginning that ma- many of the research that are done in the medical world are defined and tested and uh, produced in terms of uh, male uh, subjects. Yeah, no, this this I heard a lot about. And, and now some people say, no, some, some uh, antibiotics, for example, just to give an example, they work differently in a male body than in a female body because they have different hormones. This is the most uh, immediate. Uh, right, uh, I heard about this in the terms <coughs> of, a, of a diet, uh, like a nutrition research, yes. where a lot of diets are tested on men and they're not tested on women in their reproductive years because there's too much variability. Exactly. Um, or, they're, or they're tested on menopausal women, which also gives you a very small yeah. pool. Yeah. So... So, but, but this is a very simple way to see that certain things are done and certain things are not done until something happens. And then people say, wow. So now I think, I don't know so much of the medical world, but, uh, you know, if I think that if you, when there is a, an application for funding in the European community, where, where, is, where we get, which is where we get most of our resources, and then you come with a, a kind of that uh, gender-oriented or, or gender-related uh, 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 research, probably you will get the money easier than you get in the past and perhaps more than is justified by the, by the inherent importance. I, I'm just saying no, that it, these things don't trends. work. There they, are trends. There are trends and, and they, they influence. But... Going think, back to the... To, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I wanted to just make a point on that because, you know, we talk about science as if it's this perfect, flawless, unbiased yeah. system. And I think the scientific method itself is pristine. It yeah. is unbiased, but you don't have the scientific method in a vacuum, right? You yeah. have the scientific method being attempted by humans yeah. who are all biased. Yeah. And we all have... Are we are all influenced by the the current state of culture, right? And and these different trends yeah. and what's considered important and hot right now. Yeah. And so I think it's it's important to remember that because a lot of times we say science and we assume that it's a perfect authority. Yeah. Well, I think that today the trend is in the other direction. And what sense? Ah, science. They are. It's a, you know. It's. A, this is just a, a conjecture, you know, evolutionary theory. What do they know? These people with the vaccines, what do they know? No, I know better. Well, that's a big problem. <laughs> uh, I think and I, I think that yeah. people, uh, there is um, a, the, the question of the prestige of science is a big question. And uh, it, of course, we enter here the, the very complex world of the 
of the social networks in a world, you right. know, in a like, digital world. And I, I wanted to make a point on that. Of, yeah. I don't think it's so much that people are not believing in science anymore, but I think we are living in an era of so much yes. information yes. and misinformation yes. that, you know, I, I, yes. I, I hear from yes. what happened in yes. the 90s when the internet was starting to develop that people thought that, Oh, information was going to be exactly. accessible to everyone exactly. and everyone's going to be able to know and make yes. their own mind. But really what we, we've had is because we have so much information, there's too much noise yes. and we can't make sense of anything. That's, no, there is, this is one of the important points, but there are others. One of them is that many people, uh, you know, there are all these um, uh, conspiracy theories around, right? right? And they say, They just try to sell us all kind of stuff and uh, or uh, lies, not just stuff. I mean lies. And but there is another problem I think, which I see, which is uh, um, a lack of um, how can I say of uh, um, understanding what you can understand and what no. For example, I, I'll give you an example. When we started all these things of the um, coronavirus, it was very important that the knowledge about what's going on could be conveyed to people. Of course, this brought the other side in which what is the real truth and so on. But there is a, 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 another thing that puzzled me all the time, especially with the reporters. And I, I'm talking about reporters who wanted to do a nice job. They come and explain you all these mathematical models about the spread of the virus and so on. And I, I you know, I browse through the articles. I say, you know, I studied five years of pure mathematics. I have been all my life somehow going around mathematics. Not, I'm not a, a researcher. And, but, you know, I open these articles. They are not easy to read for me. <laughs> and so how come everyone now understand all these models and can tell you the R factor and the... So I think that people have to be a little bit more, more modest about themselves, you 100%. know, and not, and not to believe that they are able to understand everything because there is an article in the internet and I can read The Lancet, uh, which in the past I couldn't. You can reach The Lancet and you can open it it doesn't mean that you're going to understand the, the mathematical models. Most of them, I don't understand. I, I could understand if I sit there for a month and because I have the tools to develop it. But, you know, I, I have worked very hard for that. And I see that everyone around me understand the models and can <laughs> tell the constraints. I say, what's going on here? I mean... No, I, I completely agree. And I think there's a lack of humility because once you understand the limits of your own knowledge and your own ability to understand. And not because, uh, you know, you are less intelligent or something like yeah. that, but because as humans, there are limits exactly. to our knowledge exactly. and there are limits to our understanding. And there's only so much information you can take exactly. in. Of course, now you have access to all the information in the world, but in your human life, are you going to be able to process and understand yeah. all of that? And there's, there is um, something to be said of, you know, why Socrates was the most wise, because he knew that he didn't know. <laughs> exactly. But I'll tell you something which connects us to the, following what you say, connects us to the, to the earlier part of our conversation. 
the Catholic Church believed and took upon themselves the task of mediating knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now, in principle, so science says you can reach knowledge by yourself, right? But it doesn't mean that you you don't need mediation, okay? So you can, but you have to study five years to reach the MA and then 10 years to become a researcher and so on and so on. And you have to debate with people and you have it that the fact that knowledge is open to everyone doesn't mean that every one of us can reach every journal and open and understand what's going on and judge if if the if the experiment was done correctly <laughs> or not everyone knows that i say wow what's going on yeah here? everybody knows something yeah. i don't no i i think that's also an important distinction between knowledge and thinking and you yes. know you might have access to exactly. knowledge but but learning how to think is hard and it takes time and Every every time you kind of level up in your ability to think and you think of yourself a few years before and, you know, you you hold your head and you say, wow, I was so ignorant then. And it's it's a constant process. So I think this is a great point to circle back to this idea of the humanities, right? And you started your journey also by studying the humanities and literature. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think the place is of the humanities in the larger context of our culture? And what do you think is the importance of it? Well, in a natural way, I think that it's very important, but I also see that it's very important. Um, I think that now more than ever, we see a world, your world of younger people, which is very competitive, very tough, Uh, I think you're living in a world which is much tougher than the world we grew up in and which permanent jobs are more difficult to attain and are not always a desirable thing. Uh, Things are much uh, fluid that they were in our time. And then people are more focused on uh, what happens tomorrow. What do I do? What is the next thing? Now I work here, but where do I want to work in two years from now? And I think that in many respects, uh, I see a poorer, um, um, let's call it spiritual life, but I mean intellectual, spiritual, not spiritual in the religious sense of the world, because I am not. Uh, But, uh, okay, you know, if I say so, I may sound like 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 an old person who's saying to the younger people, "Ah, you, uh, you know, I I I grew up with a TV set in my room, and I am as expert on series of the '60s, which were translated into Spanish, all the American series at the time, as I am an expert in other things, and I like very much popular culture. But I think that people. You know, I'll I'll do the following comparison, which is very simple, and I I think it's strong. Let's take Israeli people, Israeli young people, right? They finish the army, and the first thing that they believe they have to do is to travel the world, right? Why to travel the world? Because we, we live in a very delimited society and culture, and we want to see other things. 
Well, we know that most of them go through what we call the hummus way, right? They, where everyone goes and go to the same places. But still, I give credit to people that they are curious about. And I think that every one of us is always proud to know that I was in a place where no one else was there. Or very few people were there. Okay, we all went to Machu Picchu, but I was in some place in Ecuador where no one else was there. And I saw <laughs> something which gives some something special to the time I spent there and so on. And I think that we can teach people that it is the same with many things in the, in the, in the uh, intellectual and artistic and humanistic world that you read some book that no one else read. <laughs> you know, you have that secret. Or this is what I, what I felt when I studied mathematics. You know, I, I went in the street as a young man. I say, I know Galois theory. You know, this guy <laughs> doesn't. I, I have been in a place. It doesn't help anything in the world, in your life. You know Galois theory. It doesn't help you in any way. But it helps you to know Galois theory. So you, I, I knew that. So, or I read certain books that, it's not because others don't know it, but I, I found a place in the world that is so special, so beautiful. It can be physically in Ecuador or in the south of Venezuela, where now it is very difficult to go to. But I have been there and I know those places. And I say, okay, it was worth spending my time. You know, you live only once. People say you live only once. And then what do they do with this only once? Read a book, listen to a symphony and try to understand what is going there. Listen to popular music, music of the good type, not, not uh, industrial music, right? Not music that anyone can do, but something that expresses in a, in a very high level way what the artist, singer, or a symphony composer, whatever does. I would say it in this way, this is what we are here for. And actually, I think that when people go to the university to study and they study law, or literature, or engineering, or whatever. In some cases, this gives them a profession to work with. In, in other, it doesn't. For example, if you study literature, okay, you, you can be a teacher, which is important and good, but in general, the humanities don't give you the, the same kind of tools for a profession that law or engineering. But I hope, or I want to advise, to people studying law and engineering, that they relate to their topics the way that a person studying history or mathematics relates to their topic, which is from a point of view of curiosity, of intellectual curiosity, of patience, of, uh, of understanding that you are here, you come to the university, and they open for you a world that you didn't know before, right? And and now you are a different person. You are a person which, who is much richer than it was before. And in this sense, I think that humanistic studies fill an important uh, uh, field in this part of the intellectual world. Some people want to understand the world of law, also perhaps because they want to be lawyers, but also because they want to understand that part of the functioning of our society. What does it mean? How do we live a, a law is equal to everyone or not? It's, it's also not because you are going tomorrow to sign a contract and you need a lawyer to do it. You need it. 
but also that person understand a part of the world that some other people cannot do. Or if you are an engineer, you see a car and you understand what's going on inside the, the, the motor and you say, wow, I understand this. I, I see this world here, of, of course, in a computer the same. And, you know, I, I think that people who understand things around them live a better life, a life which is more interesting than those who don't, who don't understand. You can go out and you can, and you can uh, make a lot of money, which is important. I wish to everyone and to myself and to my family to have as, as much as possible, but, but that's not the only thing. And I think that in the humanities, so for some people, this is what they want. They just want to know that those or their ability leads them there. But I think that, and we have done that at the university. We have created over the last years, when I was dean a little bit before and now it's going on, frameworks that allow people who study engineering, who study law, who study mathematics, to be able also to study some courses and in, in, in more than courses in the humanities, not on top of what they do, because that's what can, anyone can do. But instead, so if you have to study 120 hours to be an engineer, we allow them to study 105 and to take some. And the interesting thing, if you allow me to say, of course, this is what I learned in Venezuela. How because so? in the university where I studied, that was the way. So as I said, I studied mathematics, but part of the curriculum was to study humanistic studies, including uh, how to write, how to read a text, not a mathematical text, <laughs> a text, how to, uh, how to read, of course, uh, prose and, 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 and poems and so on. And I, I think, uh, of course, well, in my case, it's a little bit extreme because in the end, this is where I went to, and so, but combined with science in any way. But, uh, but I think I know from, many people didn't like that in the university, let's make it clear. And the, and the people, not everyone like what, what we do here and it doesn't fit any, everyone. But we have to uh, create the conditions that allow people who are interested in that to do it while they are studying in the university, not 20 years after, because we have many students who are engineers and so on and come to do a PhD in history of science, so, which is also very nice and very good. But why not allow them to go into the world with, also with some knowledge of history, of history of art, of history of music, of literature, philosophy? I think that's so important. And you mentioned a few things here that I want to touch on. But first, this idea that the humanities, you know, learning literature, learning the history of art, it, it teaches you how to think and it teaches you how to read and it teaches yes. you how to write. And language is so important. And just to orient your own thoughts and to be able to communicate with others and to to look at things in a critical manner. And, you know, it was my experience that for a while, I was thinking that reading nonfiction books was the way to learn things. Mm -hmm. And after a while of reading only nonfiction books, I, I opened a novel. You know, I opened yeah. a fiction book and I learned so much from 
just the experiences that were being told of the characters' lives and certain things that you can only learn in that way because literature does open a new world for you. And, you know, you were alluding to something before of how our world today is structured and we're very focused on the practical, right? Mm -hmm. We're very focused on, you know, you mentioned a few few career paths, very much, you know, going into university to attain a trade, a profession, and to be able to, to... show the ROI on your investment. Exactly. Right? And there are certain things of the intellectual pursuit that it's a little harder to measure how how much you benefit from it. But it does, it, there is something that's very fulfilling in it and it helps orient you in the world. And I think this idea of of looking back at history and looking back at the different liter, literature texts and the philosophical texts and understanding how First of all, how humans lived before us and understanding how ideas evolved and developed. And that gives us an orientation into the context of where we are on this timeline of humanity, Mm -hmm. right? Because our modern world is so different from Mm -hmm. what it used to be. So having all of these different windows into these different worlds, it helps Mm -hmm. us you know, understand who we are, what, mm-hmm. we're, what we're looking for in mm-hmm. life. And there's something in this uh, intellectual pursuit as, as you're describing it, that there's something um, transcendent in this curiosity, mm-hmm. right? You can kind of leave your present circumstances and to connect to something that's a, a bit bigger, a bit larger, um, you know, that something that's like, like learning a theorem that's so difficult and, someone you know hundreds of years ago developed and understanding it and, and there's a connection there yeah, right exactly. between you and him and mm-hmm. and it's amazing and it you know you said nobody else knows knows this theorem but it's it's also in a sense taking you out of your this current situation that you're in exactly transcending transcending exactly yes, that's the word amazing now this has been such a fascinating conversation thank you Thank you so much for coming to speak with us. My pleasure. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. Thank you for listening. Until next time.